from the EBKV studios in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you're listening to Flyers AD on Brotherly Pod with your hosts, Anthony DeMarco and Daniel Lesh. Welcome to Flyers AD. It is uh, Sunday here, March 8th, 2020. Daylight savings or or no more daylight savings or however the hell that works. I don't know. Lost an hour here, but we are still back. Flyers, the winners of nine straight games now. And uh, they beat the Buffalo Sabres last night. More or less by the skin of their teeth, though it was a 3-1 victory. Uh, Anthony, what did you think of the... Uh, Sabres game last night well worst game they've played in quite some time probably since that four nothing loss to the, the Devils the, that was the last game they lost if I'm not mistaken four or five nothing on home ice they really didn't play well but man Carter Hart came to play he fucking stole the show save after save it's not like he made like highlight real saves all night but he just made all the tough saves everything that he saw he he stopped and the Flyers grinded out a win, and obviously Carter Hutton helped in that regard, gave a goal to Joel Farabee on a silver platter. But, I mean, it's just very telling of this team that they can turn in such a dog shit performance and still come out with a W. Obviously, you don't want to play like that against a Tampa Bay or a Boston, and it obviously helped that it was a Buffalo Sabres, who are pretty terrible in their own right. But still pretty cool to see that the Flyers, not even close to their A game, were able to pull out a victory. The last game they lost was to the Lightning, actually. Oh, I'm thinking The Devils was a couple weeks before that. But, yeah, it was not a pretty game by any means. Carter Hart uh, stood on his head 38 saves last night on uh, 39 shots. Voracek, two assists. Drew with two goals. Travis Anna two assists as well. Justin Braun somehow survived the night, took a puck off the head, uh, early in the first period, and then got killed by a check by Rasmus Ruskalainen into the corner boards there with 20 seconds left, and he didn't miss a shift either time. So, pretty impressive. Luckily, they didn't lose him because that would have been that would have been a big loss there. Oh yeah, well, Justin Braun, the like. This is the time of year where Justin Braun is going to be at his most valuable. And I know that right now he's kind of slated as the number five defenseman on this team. But we all know that he is the number four. It doesn't matter that Phil Myers is with Travis Sanheim. Justin Braun is the more important defenseman right now. And he just, he's kind of a warrior. Not to use a cliche or sound like a dinosaur, but he's just an old school defenseman. He takes a lot of hard mitts, a lot of hard bumps. And, like, look, last night, you know, he ate just under 19 minutes. And that's been, like, the theme all season long. That aside from Niskin and Provrov and Sanheim, he's the guy that they lean on a hell of a lot of the time. And him and Robert Hay have been an excellent third pairing. And I think Justin Braun is way more to do with that than Hay. And losing him, having ghosts, having to watch ghosts come back in the lineup, I just think that Justin Braun has been such a acquisition of this team and there's not a lot of defensemen that could take the kind of beating that he did specifically last night eat those hard minutes night in night out 
and just come away with it with nothing but a couple of bumps and bruises. It was also uh, Joel Farabee's first game with a goal since February 1st. It's only 10 games. That's because he was sat out quite a few uh, when he was down in Lehigh. But he's been buzzing since he came back up. And, you know, the way he scored last night was kind of, you know, (laughs) kind of weird. It's essentially uh, Carter Hutton might have saved and didn't save the puck. And uh, Farabee found it between his legs before Hutton did. So, I mean, hey, by hook or crook, right? Especially when you're Farabee and in the middle of a goal drought. Yeah, you know, I, I got to say, these last games that Farabee's been up, been up in place of JVR, he has been pretty damn, pre- playing pretty damn well. He had, he got robbed a few times the other night against, uh, it was Carolina, I believe. He, even Hutton in this game made a couple of good stops on him. So it was almost poetic justice for Farabee to get a goal. I've been very impressed with his game since going back up. You know, I made no secret that I didn't think he was a world beater before the trade deadline and before the acquisitions and Grant and Thompson pushed him back to Lehigh Valley temporary. But honestly, he's been playing real well. I thought he's brought a a cool offensive instinct to the line with Hayes and Konechny that Lawton doesn't have. And it's been a more speed based and more offensive based with JVR out of the top nine and Lawton playing with with Grant and, and Pitlick and that third line has just been so fun to watch. Tenacious on the four check, but to focus in on Farabee, it's just it's been really cool to watch him since he came back up and he looks really hungry to stick in the lineup this time. Do you think they're missing JVR much? Uh no. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, it's funny because I was on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio last Saturday, and you know, D- uh, Dennis Bernstein kind of called me out on that because when he was on the OMB podcast, and he kind of said, "Well, you know, he's always good for twenty twenty five goals," and you know, right? He's kind of way, and I've kind of conceded on JVR as of late because he kind of got on a hot streak before he got hurt there. Ten goals in the last eleven games. No, not ten goals. Five goals and five and five assists in the last eleven games he played before getting hurt. But I think the problem with JVR is that when he does score, the goals are usually usually meaningless. He's like the least. He's the farthest thing from an impact player I think I've ever seen. And he just in the in the two seasons he's been here since re-signing with the Flyers, he really hasn't found chemistry with one specific line like he bangs in goals but it's like he'll just kind of get them out of nowhere and I know that goals come out of premium and I'm a big opponent of that that I back that a lot that I don't care how you get them but if you score that's what matters but JVR is a guy that really makes me test that logic that like yeah he scores yeah he's good for 25 goals and 50 points every year but seeing him out of the lineup right now I kind of prefer how it looks now with Farabee than it did with JVR. Yeah, I mean, he has 19 goals, given that he's going to be at pretty much the rest of the regular season. I don't think he's going to hit 20, so by default he's going to uh, not hit 20 goals for the first time in, what, quite a few years. One, two, three, four, since 2015-16, but he was injured that year, so... Been a while. Uh, I couldn't even tell. Honestly, if they did not tell me he broke his hand, I would not have even noticed he was gone because you never notice him during the games anyway. So if they didn't tell me he broke his hand, wouldn't notice he was out of that game, wouldn't notice he was out of last night. In fact, I didn't even think about him last night being out of the lineup until Jim said something on Twitter. He's like, is anybody missing JVR? And I'm like, oh, that's right. JVR's not even playing. You know, he's 
a fine guy. His defense is fine, but in terms of an impact player, like you were saying, he's just non-existent. And it's also because one of the things he was supposed to bring was the power play effectiveness, you know, replace Simmons as the net front guy. And even when he was there, you know, he's been very ineffective on the power play display. Besides that stupid trunk that he tries all the time to try to go short side shelf, he's really ineffective. And again, he has a nose for the net. He's always going to get you at least at least twenty goals, which you you can't you know you can't like put a damper on like you can't poo poo it because it is important. But at the same time, it's like shift in shift. Out out he really isn't effective and I know that he brings something to the team but I don't know heading into next season that's a guy that I really don't see as part of the long-term future of this team and we talked talked about it a lot back in November when the Flyers were kind of they were in the fight but they were kind of just relying on like the depth players and Voracek and Giroux and JVR were not playing well and we would come on here every week and blast them all to hell but you know, Voracek, this is really the best hockey I've seen him play since 2014-15 when he had that career year and got that contract. He's just been a machine, and Giroux's been playing better, but I think it has more to do with Voracek. He's just setting up Giroux like it's nobody's business, but Giroux, you know, he hit the 20-goal mark last year, and last night. So those two guys are really playing well, and I think that they've made the case to stay long-term and just ride it out with these guys. But JVR, I just really don't see a way how even next season you bring him back just based on the cap hit and, you know, the depth the Flyers have. Like, I, I, I'm i not trying to be, like, I don't know, unrealistic here, but I could see Joel Farabee taking his spot next year. So, yeah, I, I'm going into next season and beyond, I really don't see a place for JVR on this team. I mean, just for cap hit alone, I mean, he should be your first priority to move this summer. $7 million for three more years after this season. A 19-goal guy, He's like you said, he's fine. He's there. He's whatever. But at the end of the day, if you want Faraby and Frost and hopefully Patrick and, and you know, maybe in a couple of years from now, Lindblom, like, you're going to need roster spots, and you can't give them to JVR. There are all these JVR freaks on Twitter. You know, when you first went down with an injury, they're like, oh, no, how are we going to – oh, the Flyers are going to fall apart. This is the end. They can't do it. I'm like, it's fucking JVR. You know, this guy's not going to you know, make a difference in 99% of games even when he scores. So I, I think they're fine without him, and they'll be fine without him. And in terms of moving him in the summer – that cap, uh, that cap hit alone should make him priority. I don't think you should wait for Seattle, you know, next summer. You should get rid of him now. And, and I mean, for roster spots alone, you can look at this roster, and even if you don't like Grant or Thompson, you know, replace them with Frost and Patrick, and all of a sudden this roster looks great, even without JVR. I, I don't really see, you know, much like Goss's Bear at this point. I just don't see a way uh, or room for him, really, next season. Yeah, because I just... I look at this team, and like you said, there's just no spot for him moving forward. And as for the analytic geeks, you know, I, I think it's pretty easy to tell why they love him because they show their heat map, uh, their heat map charts and their graphs. But it's because yeah, JVR's heat maps look good because all he does is try and stuff pucks in from half a foot out of the crease off of rebounds. Yeah. 
And for them, I guess that translates into expected goals for, which is the dumbest fucking stat I've ever seen in my life. But it's not even to say that JVR is bad. And I've always said that if he's playing with the right players, he's going to get you maybe even 30 goals. But for whatever reason, his role is not big enough on this team go presently and moving into the future to future to justify keeping him around it's not to say he's bad he's a 50 point guy on a bad year and he can get you over 60 on a good year but right now on this team the flyers have guys younger players who in my mind like joel Faraby, could step in next season and fulfill this role and you know that's a good thing this is the whole reason why we drafted players like that Abe Kubel has stepped up and claimed the roster spot. That Tyler Pitlick looks like a guy that you can't get rid of. Derek Grant has looked really solid. Lawton and Faraby, you know, I'd be okay coming back with this exact four group next year without JVR and maybe have a Bunneman center in the fourth line than Thompson. So I don't know. I, I just, for cap space reasons and just to, you know, clear some space for the kids to come up, I don't see a way that JVR is back here next season. No, neither do I. And uh, the expected goals, essentially, as best I understand it, expected goals comes down to high danger scoring chances. It calculates your high danger scoring chances, and you're absolutely right. JVR playing net front on the power play, when somebody takes a shot and he redirects it, you know, four inches away from the goaltender, that's technically a high danger scoring chance because you're in that area, you're net front. So, yes, his numbers are extremely high because of that, and that's why everybody claims to like him, but... uh, at the end of the day, I mean, he's just he's expendable. There's nothing that he brings to the team that nobody else does. And you mentioned Jake Voracek. Listen, I've never been the biggest fan of Jake Voracek. I've made that perfectly well known over the years. But, I mean, this guy has been phenomenal since Christmas. Since he came back from that break, I mean, he's been busting his ass out there pretty much every single game and made things happen. He's on a one, two, three, four, five-game point streak with four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten assists. So, and that goes back to the Rangers game, uh, the first Rangers game. So, I mean, he's been playing phenomenally right now. And last night, they would not have won that game if it was not for Voracek finding Giroud twice. Oh, yeah. Voracek, I I can't say enough good things about Jake Voracek, and I'll eat my words. You know, I was ready to fucking trade this guy for Alex Wenberg at one point just for the fucking cap space. But I don't know what the hell happened with him. But maybe A.V. or Michel Terrier said something that clicked and set him on fire. But it, it's, I think he's playing better than he did two years ago when he had 85 points. Like, he has been, offensively speaking, I would say the best flyer this season. Oh, well, since just before Christmas, because that's when this started for him, mid-December. And I know he doesn't lead the team in points and Konechny's there. But offensively speaking, he's the best on this team right now. He is finding people. Like you said, he just found Giroud in tight quarters last night two times, and he is just driving offense. And there you go, analytics people. I'll give you something. He is driving <laughs> players right now. And that is true. It's a situation right now with Voracek where yeah, he's gaining the the also important gaining the offensive zone, but he's not just blindly throwing it into the middle anymore. He's actually creating something. So I just can't say enough good things about Voracek. And again, I don't know if I could have said this even as early as three months ago, but 
even though I still think he's a bit overpaid at $8.2 million, I still think he's a low $7 million player, but there would not be a trade to get rid of Voracek right now that would justify it because you wouldn't get fair value back for him. So I don't even think that there'd be a point in trying to move Jake Voracek and trying to trying to capitalize because there would never be a move where you could substitute for this kind of quality of play that he's at right now. And I think a lot of this has to do with the depth that Chuck Fletcher added this summer. And then just a side note, based we were talking about, you know, the high danger scoring chances, you know, back before analytics were even a thing, I remember I'd be watching hockey and from the scoreboard, there'd be a drop down and they would say scoring chances. And I never liked that because it's subjective. Like, Okay, if you take a shot between the dots, I guess it could be it could be you know considered a considered a scoring chance or high danger opportunity. But like if you get it and you flub it into the guy's breadbasket, is it a scoring chance? Like I don't know. If a guy gets three whacks at a puck, but the goalie has his paddle down and he's just repeatedly smashing it into the goalie, that means he has three high danger scoring chances. Like I don't like things in stats that are are subjective. I like things that tell that are fact. If we're going to go down a statistical route, it, it's all fact-based. If we're watching the game, then it could be kind of substitute, like it could be kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Impartial, but I don't know. I, I've never liked scoring chances, and now this is translated into expected goals for, which to me is just completely subjectively based. I wonder. Uh, I wonder if uh, JVR is better than Leon Dreisaitl. Oh my god! <laughs> like, what a fucking hill to die on, you know? Like, yeah. Like, y- you watch analysts, and I know people. Like, I got into it with a guy about a month ago because he said, "Well, I'll rather trust my analytics than what the quote-unquote experts say on TSN," and. Look, I'm not trying to act like I watch every game. I don't. I have a full-time job. I'm sure you do, too. I don't have time to stay up till 12 to watch the Edmonton Oilers play. But I don't rely on spreadsheets to tell me who's good and who's not. I rely on listening to hockey radio as much as I can throughout the day and getting people giving um, impartial opinions. And that's what I rely on. So I lean more on guys like Darren Drager and Bob McKenzie and Pierre LeBrun and or Ray Ferraro or Gord Miller to tell me that a fucking heat map does. And what these analytics people do now is that they try and tell us that the NHL is not a results-based league. That's essentially what we're doing. Because saying that Valerie Nachushkin, who hasn't had a good season, and I've always liked Nachushkin going back to his days with the Dallas Stars... You're trying to tell me that a third-line winger is better than uh, arguably the third-best center in the entire NHL, who has a chance for the highest point total since 1993 with 130-plus points. And I don't care about your moral victories and how well he drives offense. At the end of the day, driving offense is irrelevant if you don't put the puck in the net. And Dreisaitl has scored 110 points this year. And I don't care if he's bad defensively, offense comes at a premium, and he is 1 million percent better than Valerie Nachushkin and James Van Riemsdyk. Val Nachushkin sitting with a 13 goals in 27 points. Leon Dreisaitl, on the other hand, 43 goals and 110 points. 
you know, they go by the phrase that goals and points don't matter. And I find that baffling considering you win hockey games by scoring goals and getting more points than the other. But hey, what do I know? But it's one of those things. If you want to tell me that Scott Lawton is better than his goals and points say, sure, I'll buy into that 110%. But when you use that to say that Leon Dreisaitl is not good, like, you're fucking wrong, my guy. Every, I, I, I don't get it. Why? How can you even come up with such a batshit theory? People wonder why I don't take analytics seriously. It's because shit like that. And everybody, of every one of these analytics guys has their own hill to die on. We can go back to your friend, ineffective math. Provorov is bad and hurts his team on the power play. Fuck you. That's not true. You know, how, am I, how, how can you ever expect your casual fan to get into this shit when you make batshit crazy things, uh, statements like, Dreisaitl is better than Nachushkin. Because it's just not true. Oh, well, God. Well, what's bad is what I didn't like about that, well, among other things, there's a lot of things I didn't like about it, <laughs> but it's because Nachushkin is having a really good year. But now that you're making this asinine claim now people are being forced to shit on Valerie Nachushkin, and it's not fair, but you're comparing him to one of the best players in the world. Like, Leon Dreisaitl is an absolute ox. Like, you've seen him play. Like, my God, he is a beast. But it just comes back to, well, for one, I've realized that a lot of analytical people have different, I don't know, formulas or whatever. Like, I've seen Evolving Wild and fucking Mika Blake McCurdy clash a lot of the time. But my friend, ineffective math guy, who is still, he doubled down on Provorov and this and that, but it's, and I got into a con, I think it was with Dan Silver, who, I gotta say, that guy's been full of good takes as of late. But he said, like, no one is trying to say that Ivan Provorov is an elite power play defenseman. He's not, but... At the same time, he has a ton of power play goals, and he does not hurt his team on the power play. And it goes back to this thing like, well, he's producing offense and results, but the moral victories aren't there, and he's not driving play enough, so therefore he's not good. And it comes back to the whole argument of him versus Ghost. Like, okay, so we rather a guy like Ghost who takes a lot of slap shots in the general direction of the net and gains the zone a lot but gets no results out of it, then a guy like Provorov, who doesn't generate even half the amount of chances because he doesn't see the point of shooting blind shots into traffic, but he has more than quadruple the amount of results. And it's just always this. We rather, in the eyes of analytical people, we rather moral victories than raw results. And like you just said, Dan, Goals and assists are what wins you hockey games, not how many times you gain the offensive zone. It's just, God, these people just drive me nuts. I, I would love to have seen analytical people in the days of the late 1990s New Jersey Devils. Oh, because, well, because all they did was give the puck to the other team after getting a two-goal lead and say, okay, come gain our neutral zone, yeah. come gain our offensive zone and try and get shots through. Well, people were, had probably fucking 110 shot attempts a game, and they were probably in the offensive zone the whole time. 
But again, it's this whole thing that, oh, yeah, well, puck possession is translates into you being elite. Well, what if the other team isn't playing a puck possession game like the Devils did? They just tried to suffocate you. So it's just so I get the whole thought process behind it. And it's you brought this up numerous times about look at teams that have gone so balls deep down the analytical road and where it's gotten them. And look at the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Toronto Maple Leafs are driven by a 33-year-old Kyle Dubas, who is like an analytics visionary, who prides his team on being a puck position team. And like they're like fighting tooth and claw to stay relevant. And they're a good team, but that's more just based on having three superstars on their team than their actual system. Because you look at that defense and how they built it with guys like Barry and Cody CC and like quote unquote offensive minded D who pushed the play. And I put out the tweet last night, they could use some Matt Niskanen and Justin Braun types. Yeah, they absolutely could. I saw somebody, some Leaf fan on Twitter said something like they should be built like the Islanders. And of course everybody came in with the Islanders and they're losing streak and, and this and that. And it's like, if the fucking Leafs were built like the Islanders and could play a modicum of defense, they'd probably have a cup by now because they'd have so much fucking forward power that it wouldn't even matter. But they don't even know what the fuck playing defense is because they're so worried about trying to fucking run and gun offense and just outscore them and that just doesn't work. So, I don't know. This whole... It's just this fucking batshit crazy dry sidle takes. And you blocked all kinds of people because... It's just—it's not fun anymore. Block me. I don't care. It's I'm sure he blocked me. Actually, I haven't checked. Should I check quick? I'm sure he blocked me. But it's just—you're blocking people because they're making fun of your batshit takes. You're choosing to die on a stupid fucking hill. So I don't know. Oh yeah, evolving wild blocked. Oh well. I don't know well, how I'll go on. Well, <laughs> I, I can hear the devastation in oh, your voice. Shattered. But it's all these people that. They just, they go so balls deep in one general direction on a take. And I'm sure you saw me retweet the whole Madness Kangoodas trip when it broke. Ah, yes. And and even our friend Mike Aceto, like, and you know what, he ate it and it's all in good fun. But he had some of the the worst takes ever. (laughs) I'm sure you saw his replies. Yeah. But it was... And, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, what's the point of digging up old tweets and making fun of them? Everyone's had wrong opinions. And that's all true. And that was not my perspective. That was not my goal when I did that. Besides kind of getting a good laugh, it was so funny. But my main thing was, and at the time when this was all happening, I liked the Matt Niskanen deal. I really liked the Justin Braun deal. And I was indifferent on the Kevin Hayes thing. But what I was trying to tell people is, like, could we just give it a chance? Like, give it a chance. Because Fletcher's been here for six months. Give him a chance to show us what he can do. But it was out of this blind loyalty to Hextall, as if he had just given us three Stanley Cups in five years, that we were all, no matter what Fletcher did, we hated him. Like, I remember when he traded Stolars for Cam Talbot and people were acting as if he just traded Carter Hart. Like, the whole future of the organization was crumbling to bits because Anthony Stolars got traded. And then 
You know, you look at the replies for Matt Niskanen and I that trade, and I remember one guy said, great, so we got an older guy with a higher cap hit. Yeah. Thanks, Colbert. <laughs> yep. So just because he's a bit older and has a higher cap hit, that means that he's bad. And then you thank Paul Holmgren, who retired before this trade even happened. And we go back to people who thinks it's all Bob Clark pulling the strings. But it's just, just give things a chance. Because A, why were you so blindly loyal to Hextall when in five years he got you four playoff game wins? And both times you barely made the playoffs by the skin of your teeth. And B, you're calling Fletcher homegroom just because he's not Clark. Like, and I, I kind of flip it to you here, Dan, because you were obviously you did not like the Kevin Hayes thing by any stretch. But at the same time, you were willing to give the other moves a chance. I really liked the Matt Niskanen trade at the time because I was not a fan of Rad Kagudis. And, you know, everybody said, oh, Matt Niskanen's getting old. His numbers are bad. And I looked up his numbers, and it's like they weren't really any worse. I mean, sure, they weren't what they were in his days of Pittsburgh when he was, you know, in his, you know, mid-20s. But they weren't really that bad. And and I really enjoyed that. Again, a lot of people hated uh, the deal because uh, Rad Kagudis' analytics or he's younger and cheaper. And, oh, my God, they brought in somebody on a contract. How dare they? You know, it was the peak Ron Hextall. I don't want to make a trade for a 35-year-old. You know, it was that kind of thing. But uh, I loved that deal. And Braun, I was I was pretty decent on Braun just because I don't give a shit about draft picks anymore. Fuck draft picks. We need players. And I was happy on that trade. You know, Kevin Hayes, I was rather... <laughs> indifferent towards just because I didn't I didn't know what Kevin Hayes was bringing to the table now I fucking love the guy but uh just for reference here Mike Asito's tweets and I love you Mike but Jesus Christ these are horrible takes uh breaking <laughs> <laughs> breaking news of a total trash trade Niskanen will be paired with Prover on the top pair and now the Flyers are out on Truba Spurgeon or any other actual difference making defenseman this trade is sickening useless and painful this is so fucking stupid this is the top pair partner for Prover Jesus get me away from this hellish organization Oh, Mike, God. I know you're listening, Mike. What the hell was that? Jeez. It, it's like, it's one thing if you want to say, I don't think these are bigger enough impact moves. And there were many people who said that, like our friend Isaiah from OMB. He said, I like the players in Niskanen and Braun, but I don't think they're big enough impact moves. Fine. No problem. But hellish organization, sickening team, Awful trade. I saw one guy say the worst run organization in all of professional sports. What? Yeah, like you, you know, I, I, like I, I, there was one guy who said Clarky is clearly back in charge. Like it was just like you cannot like the trade. It's fine, but why must you go to such far extents? Like. Like, really, Radko Gudas? And don't get me wrong, he was fine as an off, as a third-pair guy, but, like, come on, his analytics were good because he was always deployed favorably. That was much was obvious. You know how many times early in his days with the Flyers, I saw Gudas get paired with Provorov and, and, and or Gostaspear in the top four, and he would just get his shit exposed within the first period, and he was back on the third pair with Manning? Because it was quite obvious that he couldn't play more than as a number five. And that's okay, but 
you see the difference. Like Matt Niskanen has been eating tough minutes all season long. And even last year that he had a down year with Washington, fine. But even that, he was better than Radko Gudis. Radko Gudis is not that good. He's not. I know, you know, and then people like up until recently where then so many people have just conceded now, but people were saying like, well, you know, Gudis is better than Justin Braun. No, he's not. He's not. He's not better than Justin Braun. He's not better than Matt Niskan. The only person you could say that he's maybe better than is Phil Myers. And even at that, I still take Phil Myers. Like, Radko Gudis was just an okay bottom pair guy who made some fun plays when he fucking destroyed people every once in a while. Or fucking tomahawked Matthew Perot on the head. That's it. And... I don't know. It's just a weird hill to die on, on with these people. And they're not even willing to give Chuck Fletcher a chance. And that's the thing that bothers me or that bothered me is that you just came off of four and a half years of the guy responsible for you hating this team. You hated this team because they were irrelevant for the last five years. And the guy, but simultaneously, you praise the guy who was responsible for it. And then the guy who's trying to fix that is making moves and everything he touches or sneezes at is the worst thing ever. And now you fast forward and I wrote a piece on it yesterday that he could very well win executive of the year. So when I dig up these old tweets and you read these Mike Casito things all in good fun, it's not to mock people. It's just think about this. Give things a chance before you make such ridiculous claims. I never understood all the hype for Gudis, because he could not. He was a perfectly fine third pair defenseman, but he could not play higher in the lineup. He just he yeah. was grilled every single time he moved up to the second pair. And it's like, I don't know. I'm sure his analytics were good. That's probably what it was. But listen, when he was wreck at Radko and he first got here and he was crushing people left to right, fine. But after he tried to kill Matthew Perot, like he never did anything dangerous again. He was just soft as shit after that. Like. Sure, he could, he could throw a fucking beautiful hip check every once in a while, which is great to see, but Jesus. In terms of, like, what they brought to this team, Niskanen has been arguably one of the most important players on the team all season in terms of, you know, helping Provorov get back and being the veteran presence. I know people hate that fucking term, but it's real! And, and I don't know, it's just, god damn, Niskanen, if they didn't have Niskanen and they kept Gudis, like, that alone would be a major blow to the defense. Well, yeah, because then you'd, you'd probably have Justin Braun playing with Ivan Provorov. That's essentially what would be going on. And it's, you know, people were still like, and they, and now people have just completely conceded on it because they don't care because the Flyers are waiting. But even up until, like, December, people were just like, well, you know, it's evident that Nishkinen's the better player, but the retained salary is just yeah. what really yeah. gets me. I'm just like, Okay, well, you just admitted that Niskanen's the better player. So why would the why would the Capitals trade of the clearly the better player one for one for a shitty player if there's nothing in it for them? Like, what what you think you think that Brian McClellan was just like, actually, I'll just take your shit bag third pairing guy and you could have Matt Niskanen, no problem, no problem, Chuck. Like, like they don't understand, and it goes back to this thing that Ron Hextel brainwashed everyone to think like unless you clearly rip off the guy in a trade, it's not worth making. It can't be a decent trade for both sides. It can't. It it is not a thing, and it's even the Justin Braun thing. Like people losing it. Kevin Fortier was having a conniption because of the draft picks giving up for Justin Braun. 
And, like, does anyone care about those draft picks? One of those picks hasn't even been selected yet. It's for the upcoming draft. And I could guarantee, like, he blocked me long ago because he just can't take any form of criticism. But I could guarantee that if you brought that up for him, he would still be crying about it. He would still want those coveted draft picks back. And I just never understood that. You know, like, I'm willing to bet, like, how far does this team have to go to the point where they could say, yep, I don't care about any of the moves. I don't care that they overpaid Kevin Hayes, but I don't care if they gave up draft picks for Braun. I don't care if they retained salary on Ragto Gudis. Like, I'm actually wondering, like, for some people who are so hell-bent on being mad all the time, maybe it's because they just wanted it to be Hextel. Maybe it's just this deep ridden hatred for Paul Holmgren that has translated Chuck Fletcher and this blind loyalty to Hextall. I don't know what it is, but how far would this team have to go for people to just admit like, yep, I don't care the trades that Fletcher made. It was all worth it. I don't know. I'm surprised we didn't see as many people freak out of the trade deadline moves that they traded a fourth and fifth round pick. Oh, well, I think I saw a few about Thompson. Not because Thompson, it was what, just a fifth round pick? Yeah. And I saw a few, but it's, I, I don't understand because, you know, it's the same people who were saying, oh, well, we should have gone and got J.G. Pajot. If the Flyers gave up a one, two, and three round pick in the first, second, and third, sorry, that was bad English, a first, second, and third round pick to give up Pajot and then consequently signed him to a six-year, $30 million contract, you guys would have lost it for that reason. And you know what? They shouldn't have done that. They don't need to sign Pasha to that kind of contract. So it's it's some people that it's damned if you, you do, damned if you don't. They want the team to improve, but they all want it to be by acquiring players for nothing on contracts where they make less than $2 million a year. That's what people want. And But then... I don't know, like, does this team have to win one round, two round? Do they have to win the Stanley Cup for them to just stop complaining about draft picks and contracts? Like, you know, it, it's, I brought up before, and I'll bring up again, like, I wonder how this fan base would have reacted if Twitter was as big as it is now as it was back in 2010 when they acquired Chris Pronger at the 2009 entry draft. They would have lost their shit. Lucas Spisa, oh my god, he's the future <laughs> of the team, like, like I don't know, man. It, it it's tough to see because this is the best team that I've seen since 2012, and even 2012, I wasn't confident because of Bridgegalov and their defense. I didn't think it was that good. So this may be the most optimistic I've been since 2010, and I'm hesitant there. Because that, you know, the defense with Pronger team and it was just amazing. Then down the middle, you had Richards, Briere, and Giroux, and it was just incredible. But even at that, at least you have a goalie now just having Carter Hart. And it's just like, guys, like, just enjoy the ride. You don't know that. I know everyone wants to assume that they're just going to, like, keep uh, improving in a linear line, but it's not always like that. You got to maybe just enjoy the ride here been looking up some of my Matt Niskanen hot takes on the trade and the two that I found were pretty uh, plain and simple <clears throat> I'm not afraid of Niskanen's, Niskanen's contract it's only two years y'all should be more afraid of Hayes's contract which in the grand scheme of things 
It's still true. And the other one, the reaction to the Niskanen trade tells me people forget what it's like to be buyers and not sellers. And uh, I think that wraps it up uh, in that pretty clear because it's just <laughs> people forgot what it was like to add legitimate players to your team instead of, you know, getting rid of players for, you know, mid-round picks that you're going to cherish far after their fucking values fallen off a cliff. So, yeah, Niskanen's great, Braun's great. Pretty much every move Fletcher made this year is great, and it's the reason why the Flyers have made it this far anyway. He added a great crop of guys to a blossoming team, and that's the reason why they're sitting pretty in a playoff spot and are hunting down the Capitals for first place in the Metro. And, you know, I've seen, I read your article about AV being a, a contender for the Jack Adams, and that's all true, and this guy's just been absolutely amazing at you know, my favorite coach growing up was Peter Laviolette, and now I'm kind of starting to think, like, man, is AV better? And we could touch on that a bit later on. But, like, you know, the more I look at it, and like I said, I wrote the piece about Fletcher, and I don't know, like, is Fletcher more positively responsible for this? Because he brought in AV, obviously. He brought in the coaching staff. And for me, it's just I've never seen a general manager – in the first calendar year on the job in a team, look at a team and assess the roster and say, okay, we need this, that, and that, which was depth down the middle, a legitimate coaching staff, and veterans on the back end. Not just any defense, but legit veteran right shot guys. You know, he brought in AV with Mike Yo and Michel Terrier, arguably the best coaching staff I've ever seen on this team. He brought in Kevin Hayes in the summer on a big contract, which, to your point, is still probably going to be problematic in the grand scheme of things, but in the short term has been remarkable. And then subsequently brought in Derek Grant and Nate Thompson at the trade deadline. So 75% of the centers on the roster right now were brought in by Chuck Fletcher over the last nine months. And then you look at the defense, and he brought in Justin Braun and Matt Niskanen. And I look at it, and I say, everything he tried to do, he did, and it paid off in spades. So could you really think of another general manager worthy of winning executive of the year than Chuck Fletcher? Not off the top of my head. If I uh, do a little more uh, research as to who's around in the league and see what they've done, maybe, but... I mean, he's he's started it all, and you know we can call AV, uh, uh, you know Jack Adams, but even my argument against that would be like, who knows how good this team could have been with a real coach for the past five years without Dave Hextall? You know, the guy was such a fucking, you know, disease, such a goddamn non-factor for this team that you know maybe even a semi-decent coach could have taken them if they kept Baruby. Like, who knows? Maybe that could have been a totally different story. But maybe it was just because goddamn Dave Hextall was so fucking bad that. You know, anybody could have done a better job. So in that sense, uh, but yeah, Fletcher, in terms of what he's done, um, has been incredible. I mean, he addressed the coaching, addressed all the needs on the roster, and took his team from missing the playoffs to tied for first place in the Metro right now. I mean, he should definitely be considered for, for GM of the year, and I can't think of anybody off the top of my head that is even close. And it's... And I, I know why people didn't like it, because they looked when he first got hired and they looked at his track record in Minnesota. And you know what? He had his fair share of ups and downs. But at the end of the day, when he took over from in Minnesota, I believe he got hired in 2009. I'm pretty sure that's when he got the job. You know, 
The Minnesota Wild were a very competitive team for over five years, and I know they never made it past the second round under his watch, but, and I'm not trying to make excuses, but they also peaked at probably the worst possible time in the West. They peaked when Chicago and Los Angeles were on the top of the world, and St. Louis was still pretty competitive before, you know, when they had the Bacchus and the Oshie and that whole era. And... You know, they shit on him for the Parisian suitor contracts. And anyone who knows a thing, A, you know that that was all the ownership that made those contracts happen. And B, those contracts were worth it because as soon as they signed those two to those contracts, they brought them from obscurity to one of the better teams in the Western Conference. And I know he made some bad moves, you know, the Burns one being the worst and, you know, trading for Martin Hansel. But I also understand why he made that deal. You know, they were pushing for the playoffs. But you know, keeping a team that competitive, and he built one of the best defensive cores at one point on that team, and it's just, you can't just look at everything through a cap space tunnel, and that's where I think people have gotten, is that, like, I don't know if it was Ron Hextall, or they're still scarred from Paul Holmgren circa 2013, I don't know what it is, but people have this habit now, of they look at everything through a cap space slash draft picks tunnel. And if you don't have a lot of cap space and you don't have a lot of draft picks, that means your general manager is shit. And I think it's like what you said. People have forgotten what it's actually like to be a competitive team. I forget what it's like to make moves to, to be competitive. And I think it's a mixture of both. I think Holmgren was so extreme on one end and Hextall was so conservative on the other that it's a mixture. People go, they they look back on, you know, the AMAC deals and, and trading all these, you know, batshit crazy trades that Holmgren was making there towards the end. And they look at the, you know, overly conservative nature of Ron Hextall and not trading for anybody and only signing players to, you know, league minimums and, and not putting any money out and making the team better. You know, they want to win, but they don't want to go out and spend any money to do it. And it's just kind of, you know, I think Fletcher's a nice, happy medium there. You know, he put the team up, but at the end of the day, none of these contracts are overly wild. Uh, you know, like I said, maybe the uh, Hazel will come back to bite him in five, six years from now. But for the time being, right now, Kevin Hayes is the single most important flyer this team has had, and I couldn't even tell you how long. So, I mean, it's a move that needs to be made. And uh, you're going to have misses. Every general manager does. I'm sure we can dig through Hextall and find a whole bunch of bullshit he's done over the years. But, you know, they're not all misses. In short, he did some shit in Minnesota that wasn't ideal. You know, the Parisian suitor contracts, even though that had the Flyers' fingerprints all over them to begin with, you know, it needed to be done because you wanted to make your team competitive. Like you said, they peaked at a horrible time, given the the dynasties that would be uh, Chicago and L.A., but you know, you're gonna you you're gonna have misses when you're making moves. And sure, I'm sure sometime soon in the next couple of years, Fletcher's gonna make a move here that's gonna go sideways. It's only a matter of time. He can't stay this perfect forever. But you know, in the meantime, give me a fucked up trade if it means having Kevin Hayes and Matt Niskanen and a fucking winning team on the ice. That's all I want. I don't give a shit about anything else. As long as I can watch what I'm watching right now with the Flyers kicking ass and taking names on a nine-game win streak and tied for first place in the Metro, that's all I want. Who gives a shit about the moves if you win cups? And you've talked about it before. Do you think St. Louis is kicking themselves they don't have Joel Farabee or Morgan Frost right now? Probably not. You know why? Because they have Braden Shen and a Stanley Cup. 
Who gives a shit about trading away a few picks if it means at the end of the day you're going to win a cup? And that right now, right here, is the end game for Chuck Fletcher. Whether it happens this year or next year, or maybe not at all. Maybe they win competitive. But you know what? He's trying his goddamn just to win, and that's all I can ask for. Yeah, I know. And it's like it's like when everyone shits on Paul Holmgren, and I've said this a lot before, it's just like, do you forget like 08, 09, 2010, 2011, 2012, like those five years where every single year, like you're just like, okay, they're going for it. Like I didn't really care that the Flyers entered a rebuild in 2014, I guess is when it started, because I said they had five years where they went for it. And that was some of the most exciting hockey I've ever watched. You know, conference finals in 2008, Stanley Cup finals in 2010, they got to the second round in 2011 and 2012. Like, the pro- it wasn't the problem that they had to enter a rebuild. Like, look, L.A. is doing it now. Chicago's doing it now. Pittsburgh's just fucked up and it's never going to be bad. But most, <laughs> but most teams, you get to that. But And then Hextall came in and I was just like, okay, rebuild. It's fine. I bought in completely. But And I still see people saying, like, tr- still trying to defend Hextall. Well, like, well, do you see all the players? It's all, all hexy. And I'm just like, yes, he drafted well, but it's one part of the job. If you want to just be a draft guru, go be a central scout. Like, what do you want me to say? Like, every player that the Flyers have on their roster right now that is worth a shit was drafted bef- from 2016 or earlier. Provrom and Konechny, 2015. Carter Hart. 2016 Samheim Sanheim and Obey Kubel 2014 you know we already know all the vets that have been here for a shit ton of time you know you look at a guy like Phil Myers he was signed as a free agent in I believe 2016 like after 2016 after 2015-16 Hextall wasted everyone's time his first two years here were brilliant and you know what? Being bad for 14, 15, and 15, 16 was okay because this needed to be done. But the whole bullshit afterwards was a complete load of shit. Like, even drafting Joel Farabee in 2018 and Frost in 2017. Like, yeah, that's great, but neither of them are really big, high-impact players right now. And I still say, like, I think those two will be good offensive, good players in the future. And Farabee's already an NHL player in my mind. But if you could ask me if I would redo that trade to have Braden Shen back now, that's tough, man. I'd probably lean towards it because you put Braden Shen on this team now, and this team is fucking scary. Yeah, it's it's the difference of being competitive, I guess. And, and you know, Fletcher's just going to... He's going to make moves, and it's going to happen. And I think fans just need to relax, because not every move is going to be a Hextall move. But yeah, in terms of wasting time, that was Hextall's, Hextall's whole gimmick. and she, He laid the foundation. I'll give him that. vast majority of this team has his fingerprints all over it. And, you know, he drafted well, and he did this and that. But in terms of pushing the team in a competitive direction, it wouldn't have happened. If he wasn't fired last year, we would still be spinning our tires. Dave Hextall would still be here. You know, they'd be probably on the bubble team as always, and it's just, it's time for a change. He did his job, he came in, he rebuilt, but it was time for somebody else to come in and finish the job, and that's what Chuck Fletcher's here to do. You know, I've I've seen one guy, he literally said, like, 
Well, Hexie's plan came to fruition. His mind was always on 2019-20. Like, that's, that's so false. And it's like you said. Could you imagine what this team would be like if Hextall was still around? Like, ha- fucking Hextall would probably be assistant general manager by now. Fuck. Like, just that alone, just his handling of the coaching alone was reason to be fired. I've never seen anything like that in my entire fucking life. Like, a guy as garbage as Dave Hackstall literally had to get his boss fired so he could get kicked to the yeah. curbs. Like, Hextall literally would not budge. Like, I remember they went on a losing, a 10-game losing streak in 2017-18, and everyone was waiting for Hackstall to get canned. Remember the, the fire Hackstall chance? And then yep. like, and I remember Bob McKenzie reporting that he talked to Hexy and Hextall said, under no circumstances is Dave Hackstall getting fired. Like, that's fucked up. Sorry, that that's just fucked up. Yeah, I... I... <laughs> it was crazy the time and looking back on it, it's like how bad would things have needed to gotten for him to even consider firing him? I mean, fuck. He should have been fired after 2017 after that fucking horrible playoff with the uh, Penguins. And it was a 2018, whatever the hell it was. I don't know, but it should have gotten fired then. And they didn't. And he hung on and they fucking came out in the season were horrible in October. Didn't get fired. Horrible in November. Didn't get fired. Then fucking Axtall got fired. And, and the only reason, Hext, uh, Hext, uh, Dave Hextall survived as long as he did was because Fletcher wanted to analyze him. I don't know what the fuck there was to analyze. All you had to do was look at the record over the past five fucking years. But <laughs> the fact that that guy was here as long as he was is, is is insane. It was crazy at the time, and it's just bad shit now looking back on it and going like, what the fuck? Where, what, what was going on? Why was he so steadfast to this guy? Well, you're obviously... You live much closer than Philadelphia than I do. But, like, I've heard reports that, like, the final straw with them is that with all that bullshit with the goalies that they wanted Hart to come up, and that's what was the final straw with Holmgren and upper management with Hextall. But from what you know, like, what was the final straw with Hextall that got him canned? Because he says that he was shocked by the move. I'm not entirely sure. I don't remember what it ended up being that was the the straw that broke the camel's back um, in terms of the move. I remember hearing Carter Hart, the, the Carter Hart stuff, that you know there was some uh, disagreement there. But I think it was just the organization wanting to, to make a change. I think there was a lot of stuff that happened um, behind closed doors as far as what Hextall was doing to you know the alumni teams and and just his general disinterest and communication. Apparently, he wasn't, like, talking to anybody, and there wasn't a whole lot of good communication there, and they just wanted... I think they just stepped in and had enough, and the team wasn't playing well enough for them to justify him being here anymore, and I think it was a whole bunch of stuff that that, that kind of ended his tenure here, uh, but uh, there's been some quite a few horror stories that have come out about his, you know, backstage attitude uh, after he got fired that, you know, he just... He wasn't the most pleasant guy to be around. He was stuck... It was his way or the highway, and I think uh, that was a big reason why he's not here anymore. Yeah, I heard that shit about the alumni team, which is so weird. It's just like, dude, you're a fucking alumni. Like, but... And then the whole, like, Chris... Uh, his assistant gym was Chris Pryor, if I'm not mistaken, that... And you know what? It, it's really sad what happened with him because his first two years here, he was a rock star. I, I'll say it firsthand. Like, when he was just getting rid of the bad contracts and drafting, like, 
2015 alone, like drafting Pro Club and Konechny, that was brilliant. But like a refusal to move the team forward, I, I've never seen that before in my life. Yeah, absolutely wild. But speaking of the wild, the Flyers' upcoming schedule here. The soft little games are over. They play Boston on Tuesday. At they're at Tampa on Thursday, and then the Wild uh, next Saturday, and the Oilers, and a back to back there. So, not going to be an easy week here. This is going to be the, the the real week uh, in terms of testing them. Boston on Tuesday, and Tampa on Thursday in Tampa. They don't exactly have the best record in Tampa there, but um, overall, these are going to be two tester games to see just how good this win streak team is. Yeah, and you know, I put out a tweet last night that. They have 14 games left. If they go 500, 7-7 seven and seven the rest of the way, they'll still finish with 103 points. Hopefully they do better than that because I think it is hell of, a whole hell of a lot important that they finish first. But, you know, it's just kind of comforting to know that they don't have to, like, fucking play at an 800 level of play to just get into the playoffs. So even if they lose a game or two this week, it's not the end of the world. But you're right, it's going to be tough games from here on out. They are tied with the Capitals for first place in the Metro with identical records, 41-20-7 for 89 points. There is now a five-point gap between the Flyers in second place and the Penguins in third. Penguins have 84 points after losing to the Capitals yesterday. So they are not only tied with the Capitals, but they managed to put some uh, some room between themselves, which is, is good because, you know, the back-and-forth, you know, one-point games there with all these teams, it's, uh, it's good to see a little break there, but... If they play Carter Hart against Boston and then play Brian Elliott against Tampa, I'm going to lose my shit. <laughs> uh, well, you know, honestly, I, I, I'm kind of comfortable with Elliott right now. I'm not going to lie. And I think that they're putting a big onus on protecting Hart. So, I mean, I hope that they play Hart both of those games to kind of, you know, make, give them the best opportunity to win. But if they don't, I guess you just got to trust AV's process, as cliche as that sounds. Oh, I can't stand it. I have nothing against Brian Elliott. This has nothing to do with Brian Elliott. This has everything to do with the fact that the playoffs are a month away and your top goaltender isn't playing on the road after he struggled on the road all year. Why are we not giving him more reps on the road to practice so in a month from now when they're in Pittsburgh in Game 3 and 4, he goes out there and he knows what to do rather than, what are they going to do, start Brian Elliott in the playoffs? I don't think so. It's going to be Carter Hart. Sink or swim. What happens then? Why are they not playing Carter out of the road? <laughs> uh, you know what? I wouldn't be opposed to playing if they do. If it is just about rest, I would rather that they play Elliot at home against Boston and then hard on the road against Tampa. If they do want to give Elliot a start, that's what I would go for the reasons that you just listed. Oh, I'll lose my shit. Lose my shit. <laughs> I'm so unhappy if it's Elliot starting in Tampa, but. Yeah, gonna be uh gonna be a big week. I said Boston, Tampa, Wild, Oilers, and then uh, the following week is St. Louis, Dallas, Predators, and Islanders. So whole lot. Then it does seem like it does get a little easier there towards the end. Their last four games of the season, the last six rather: Red Wings, Devils, Penguins, Rangers, Predators, Sabers. So they do end it on a string of non-playoff teams there that hopefully aren't trap games but um yeah if they can survive this upcoming week here then it's pretty much gravy from here on out which standings wise is is a good thing because you know i have a feeling they're probably going to secure a playoff spot 
relatively easily. But in terms of, you know, maybe still gunning for that first spot, I, I think that would be the way to go. I almost don't want them to win first spot. If the playoffs were to end today, first place in the Metro plays the Islanders. Second place plays the Penguins. I would much rather play the Penguins than I would the Islanders in the first round. Yeah, well, the Islanders, like, they do kind of scare me just for the way that they play the Flyers, but I don't know. Like, the Penguins are just, like, I just, I don't like playing Crosby and Malkin. They're just so fucking annoying. I don't know. Like, I know that the Flyers have played the Penguins a lot better this year, but I just think that winning the division would be good for the fact that you know that Washington or Pittsburgh are going to beat each other out in the playoff in the first round. I think just for that reason alone, I'd rather them win the division. But at the same time, the point you brought up is good. So at this point, I think just getting home ice in the first round would be the most important thing. Yeah, and that way you can have Carter Hart fail on the road in games three and four. But... Uh... <laughs> All right, all right. I think that'll be just about it for today. I'll be back probably Tuesday night. We'll do a post game uh, with Jim and I. We canceled uh, last Thursday's episode because I was uh, under the weather and could not do much talking, if you can tell in my voice today. But um, back Tuesday night, probably Wednesday as well. Probably Thursday. Same usual schedule. You should all know that by now. But um, Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at ADEMARCO25. And I'm at Dan the Flyer Fan, at Brotherly Puck, at Brotherly underscore pod, and at Angry Negative. Be sure to subscribe to both of those shows if you do not already, so you do not miss an episode. And I'll be back Tuesday. Flyers on a nine-game win streak. Maybe they can uh, stretch it to ten, first since the Dave Haxtell era. <laughs> and uh, that'll be it, everybody. Uh, goodbye and good night.